0: When my oldest daughter was eight years old, she was diagnosed with type one diabetes. And I remember the day very well when she had been unwell for quite a few days and we knew something was wrong, but we just couldn't figure out what it was. And then I remember so distinctly this one morning, it was super early in the morning, but she was so tired and she was so weak that she was coming to find me and she fell down the stairs cause she just couldn't even walk down the stairs. And it was horrible. And I called my husband and I was like, "We something's wrong and we need to figure this out today. And so we have a lovely, wonderful friend that we're so thankful for who's a GP who ran a whole bunch of tests. And, um, and then it ended up that night that he came and drove us to McMaster Children's Hospital and they're going crazy at intake, right? All the nurses and all the doctors and they're going crazy. And, and then I remember this one nurse uh, just kind of stopping for a second and looking at me and she's like, has anybody told you what's going on? And I was like, no. <laughs> and she's like, oh, your daughter has type one diabetes. And so I was like, okay. And then she started talking to me about how, don't worry, they have special summer camps that your kids can go to. And I was like, what? I was like, what? She can't,
1: yeah, I was like,
0: she can't go to, anyway, so confused, and then over the next 24 hours, we had a crash course in insulin, in carb counting, in needle injections, in fast acting sugar, and we were sent home. It was on a Friday, we were sent home, and they were like, hey, like, and then there was follow-up, but it was like, you're okay, and I was like, we are not okay. (laughs) We are not okay. She was so unwell, and we we did not know what to do. And it was a horrifying thing to realize that your child has been, um, like, basically starving to death because she wasn't able to receive the nutrients that she needed from her own body while she was unwell. And then now we had to figure out how to do the balance of carbs and insulin to try to make her. Um, be okay again. And normal things that we would have taken for granted, like eating snacks and eating dessert and going outside to play and not worrying about anything, about participating in sports, about going to summer camp. All of a sudden, all of these things felt not possible, not safe, like not okay for her to participate in. And every day for, I would say a year, Um, It was such a horrible learning curve of trying to find the balance of giving her enough insulin so that she could have energy and do the things that she needed to as a child, but not giving her so much insulin that her life would be in danger. And trying to do the math of that, trying to do the figuring out of that, trying to learn that as her mom and then seeing the implications of it Uh, worked out in her body and if we would do a miscalculation or if there was factors that you just can't possibly consider um, that she would live that in her body in a way that affected her life very much and so for sure for that year uh, we were not okay she was not okay I was not okay (laughs) as her mom it was so stressful it was so constant and it again was just a horrible thing to feel like you couldn't care for your beloved child um, that you just want everything. I couldn't make it better for her. I couldn't figure it out. I couldn't make it go away. Um, And it was hard to know how to hold that in a space with Jesus too. How do I tell her that she's okay when she's not okay? And she's feeling that live on such a daily basis. And so slowly we learned in all kinds of different directions. We learned how to manage it. We learned about technology. We learned about lots of things. We learned how to trust Jesus in new ways when she was at school and I was at home. And when things went wrong and we ended up in the hospital, we. we learned and we moved back towards okay in lots of different ways through that learning. Thank the Lord. We're grateful for the help. We're grateful for the medicine. We're grateful for the faithful presence of Jesus in all of the in-between spaces. Um, But even now, even though she's okay, (laughs) she's okay. And we've got a lot of things sorted out. She's also not okay every day. And it's a thing that doesn't um, get better, even though you learn it and it gets easier. It's a daily routine that she walks. And so some days she's all right. Some days you could almost forget because you just get used to all the math and all the decisions. Um, But she's not actually really quite okay. And so that's the thing that we have learned through this process as a family, a thing that I have learned through this process as a mom, how to be okay, even when it's not okay, and how to stay with Jesus, even when it's not okay. And so we are in the third week of our Acts series, and we're gonna be diving into Acts chapter six in just a few minutes, but we just wanna take a second to regroup on where we have come from over the last couple of weeks as we pick it up. And so in week one, Jimmy was talking to us about how we are the new temple, that love is the new language, that the spirit is here in us, given. And in week two, last week, I was here talking about noticing the miracles, talking about taking the opportunities to point to Jesus with whatever is happening, and then talking about this rhythm that we need of receiving from God and responding in the work of the Spirit. And this week, we're into Acts 6, talking about experiencing the Spirit through suffering, that it's okay to not be okay.
1: A lot of us grew up in traditions, religious traditions that were like, if I follow Jesus, then my fill in the blank will get better, healthier, taller, skinnier, better smelling, better looking, bigger bank account, et cetera, et cetera. And this is a lie. Like it's just not true. One of the last things that Jesus says to his uh, his sufferers, non-Freudian slip, his followers, when they ask, okay, so help us understand. In fact, it's the parents of these two boys who come to um, Jesus and say, okay, so if Messiah, right? Yeah. Okay. So our boys are good boys. Um, Can you make sure that they're on your left and your right when you come into your kingdom? And Jesus is like, like, this isn't okay, like they're not gonna be okay, but they'll be okay. And it's okay for them to stay not being okay, if that makes sense. In fact, he promises in John chapter 10, in this world, you will experience what? Hardship, cruelty, suffering, uh, agony, but take heart because I, Jesus, the Christ, the King have what? Overcome the world, that this is not all that there is, and that your existence in, in this physical realm is not uh, like calculating risk and reward, is not just the right, right planning and investments. Your existence in, in a holistic sense, as we follow Jesus, as we are little Jesus is, as we are disciples, followers of Jesus is to mimic Jesus in his teaching and his ethic and his love and in his suffering in his suffering. It is the one thing that Jesus promised amidst joy and grace and inclusion and forgiveness and salvation, also suffering. You will suffer. You will be invited to choose to take up your own cross. And Jesus is mending the heart, not just always the body or the bank account uh, or, you know, choose your thing. Now this is a fascinating shift in the life of the the disciples who now are starting to get it. Remember, at the end of Luke uh, from our, our first teaching in the series, they've now been awakened to the reality of death of their Messiah and thinking it's all over. They've now been awakened to the reality of women have a voice, the marginalized, marginalized have a voice, and that God cares about the suffering of the lowly and will elevate them to an equitable place and will bring the rich and the wealthy down to that place. Literally heaven and earth crashing in together, which is the new temple, right? that the spirit dwells within the bodily temple of these new believers, that the spirit will dwell within, within them and the spirit of the Christ will empower them to do the work while they suffer. And so it's okay to stay while you're not okay. And all of us have those reminders in our lives, whether it's sickness, uh, type one diabetes, whether it's ailing parents, whether it's a very sore and uncomfortable shoulder, whether it's uh, ongoing hardship with finances or jobs. Like this is, this is not a, a transaction that's based on your lack of faith or anything like that. It's a promise of just being in the world, but take heart, I've overcome the world. So I'm gonna invite you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 6. And we're going to uh, go through the first seven or eight verses and then just walk through the story um, of what's happening and where this gets us, which is really, really interesting. So Acts chapter six, um, we're going to read through verses one to seven. Um, While you're turning there uh, either online or you're watching at one of our sites, Acts chapter six, while you're turning there, I'll make just a couple quick announcements. Number one, at the end of our series here, we're going to be having a Q and A Sunday and Laura and Quincy will be up here and we'll be fielding the questions that have come in. And so if you have questions about anything that's being, is being said tonight, will be said, um, uh, you know, in the upcoming teachings or has been said, you can send those questions to ask at themeetinghouse.com, ask at themeetinghouse.com, or even if you're there live uh, um, in the chat, you can drop those questions there and we'll, we'll kind of gather those together and take a, uh, I don't know, the top five or 10 and uh, turn this monologue into dialogue. Okay, Acts chapter six. But as the believers rapidly multiplied, the word there isn't actually believers, that's an English translation of Talmudin. So it's uh, um, those who study the way of Jesus. So it's the disciples. As the believers, the disciples, the Talmudin rapidly multiplied, there were rumblings of discontent. Okay, interesting. This is the first that we read of discontent within the family up until now it's been, we've got the spirit, we're overthrowing the temple. We've got our Messiah. We've seen the resurrection daily. The Lord is adding to our numbers, those who are being saved. But what do we find now that they're gathered together as one family, like you did over your Thanksgiving meal this last weekend, like you do over your supper meal. Sometimes you got to grumble. Sometimes there are little micro aggressions or divisions that left unchecked can go in a whole different like atomic level. So there were rumblings of discontent, not anger, not war, not violence, but discontent, that little like just bugs me. Rumblings of discontent, the Greek speaking believers, which are kind of the second in line, the Greek speaking believers saying that their widows were being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. So the 12, the apostles, the earliest disciples called a meeting of all the believers. And they said, we apostles should spend our time teaching the word of God and prayer and not running a food program. And so brothers select seven men who are well respected and are full of the spirit and wisdom we will give them this responsibility. Then we apostles, the disciples, the first 12, can spend our time in prayer and teaching the word. And everyone liked this idea, that's interesting. And they chose the following, Stephen or Stephanos, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius, and Nicholas of Antioch, an earlier convert to the Jewish faith. And these seven were presented to the apostles who prayed for them as they laid their hands on them. So. God's message continued to spread. And the number of believers greatly increased in Jerusalem and many of the Jewish priests were converted too. Okay, my good gracious, look what's happened here. So first of all, um, does anybody remember what's happened just before this like little Thanksgiving dinner? Earlier on or at the end of chapter five, the apostles have just come back from a kind of makeshift trial where they've absolutely got their butts whooped. They were flogged at the hands of the religious leaders at the time. Who else was flogged? Jesus, right? A flogging wasn't just like, you know, a spanking. When you were like a kid, this was like a a formidable, torture experience. Probably not within like, uh, would, wouldn't be the same as like a, a Roman flogging at the hands of, um, you know, the, the council of Rome that were intending to, this was the precursor of Jesus being killed, but certainly a severe beating. Now, if ever, has anybody been flogged before? Nope. Okay. Uh, probably not many of us. This, this is a, a brutal decision and a brutal experience that is meant to lead to a brutal outcome. So if you were disciplined by flogging, it meant that like the religious leaders have taken notice and you need to stop what you're doing because if flogging doesn't get you, guess what will, you know, your Messiah has just been crucified. That's what's next for you. And it's interesting at the end of chapter five, the apostles left the high council rejoicing, What? They are okay with not being okay and staying exactly what they are, where they are. They counted a blessing, uh, worthy to suffer um, disgrace in the name of Jesus. The apostles left the high council after being flogged, rejoicing that God had counted them worthy to suffer disgrace in the name of Jesus. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they continued to preach, This message, Jesus is the Messiah. Now what are they warned not to do? Do not go house to house or in the temple to teach. And what do they do? Uh, We're going to continue to do that like come hell or high water, flogging or crucifixion, we're going to do it because this thing, this movement of the spirit has made its way into our holistic selves. We no longer care about the up into the right strategy or the right bank account or whatever. We are willing to suffer disgrace because of how much Jesus means in and through us. And then interesting, they get back and they gather together and there, there are uh, Hebrew or, or Aramaic speaking uh, Jews at the time. And then there are Greek speaking Jews. Now this is where the discontent comes from. It's a different, uh, It's some scholars would say it's an accent thing. Some would say it's, it's a language thing, that they are having a hard time understanding each other and being um, empathetic towards each other for their background. And so they are grumbling. And Luke's, pointing out that it seems as though the Jewish people who were there first are um, giving special privilege and honor to uh, the the English rendering is the widows. The widows is usually like a moniker for the poorest of the poor. So when you read widows in the New Testament, it's likely widows, but it's also the poor that have gathered alongside the disciples. And it is the responsibility in even an Old Testament ethic that you take care of the poor that are among you, that you actually set apart a portion of your, your food, your livestock and your money to make sure that there are no poor suffering or dying On your watch. And yet, these religious people, these newfound faith people in Jesus, are grumbling because there's almost a hierarchy that's starting to bubble up. So, our widows are not getting as much as your widows. It's interesting with the early disciples who are like illiterate, wandering, nomadic, like displaced young dudes who have gathered along with thousands and thousands of others. It's interesting what they do. They don't go, Oh my goodness, we're not equipped for for this. They say, hold on here. We feel like we've been called to pray and to teach. So we need to actually like hire or empower ministers or deacons. This is where we get this kind of language from deacons that will help to serve the body, literally serve food to the body. And so in this rendering, it says, um, it it kind of reads weird don 't you think so verse two so the twelve called a meeting with all the believers, they said, We apostles should spend our time teaching the Word of God, not running a food program now that seems condescending it 's not it 's not that 's not the the intent of the rendering of even this text we 're not meant to spend our time at something that we 're probably not the best at, where the spirit is empowering other gifted people to serve, to care for. We need more than just teachers and prayers and prophets. We need deacons and ministers and caregivers, you know, people who uh, um, embody hospitality and other centeredness to serve the poor because there are so many among us. Now we have to stop bickering, come on. Like we're the same body with the same spirit. We follow the same Lord and Jesus. And we have the same mission is to take this gospel, the good news of the love of God through the grace of Jesus into the entire world, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And that's it. That's it. They solve it right there. So then everyone liked this idea. How many church meetings? (laughs) How many subcommittee meetings? How many board meetings have you been to where you're like, man, what a oof, I just everybody liked the ideas tonight. Yeah, we all got along. We all, <laughs> it's two on the nose, keep going. Okay, everyone liked this idea and they chose the following people. Now, did you notice who the Jews, these, these disciples who are Jewish through and through, they are Nazarene Galileans, who do they choose? They choose the Greeks. Isn't that fascinating? The spirit is starting to crack open this like, insular shell of religion. So the earliest disciples say, actually, I think the Greeks have got it here. We'll choose Stephen or Stephanos. And then there's a list, all of whom are Greek. One of whom is an earlier convert, who's a new believer. They will be the ones who serve. They have experienced being outsiders. They know what it's like. God will use them by the spirit to serve so that everybody has enough. These seven were presented to the apostles who prayed for them as they laid their hands on them. Anybody remember the symbology of laying hands? The anointing of the spirit, reminded that the spirit is here and a special empowerment of like the the power of God in and through these people. So God's message, what stopped? Nope. Continued to spread because they were willing to serve and suffer. They were okay to stay and not be okay. They continued to spread. Uh, The number of believers greatly increased in Jerusalem and many of the Jewish priests. Yo, the Jewish priests were converted And then things go the opposite way. So that's the like romantic opening story of a really devastating, like novel here. So then Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power performed amazing miracles and signs among the people. I read one scholar that like, it's not named what he does, right? Amazing miracles and signs among the people. Well, what, what did he do? I would contend that we just read it. What is Stephen willing to do with his newfound position? Serve, care for people, touch and heal the sick. Religious people did not do this. No, we would not touch them. It would make make us unclean. That the wondrous power and miracle working that Stephen is doing is willing to stoop. Like Laura said last week is to notice the availability of miracles that are all around you. And it's likely in and through the poor. So Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, grace and power performed amazing miracles and signs and wonders. But one day some men from the synagogue of the freed slaves as it were called, uh, started to debate with them. So this is, again, these are um, a, a Jewish synagogue context, religious temple leaders who are like, okay, so okay. Stephen has now been, w- w- don't think we can touch the, the disciples anymore. Like the apostles, they've just been flogged. Let's deal with one of their like lower end folks. So let's talk to Stephen. They set up a debate. Most scholars would say they had like, okay, so, w- you're you're teaching, whose authority are you doing this under? And they debate with him. He proclaims, he persuaded, um, uh, persuades them that he has the power of the spirit living within him. And they are amazed at his wisdom. None of them could stand against, verse 10, against the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen spoke. So what did they do? They gave up said, yeah, okay, I guess we'll join your squad. No, they persuaded some men to lie about Stephen saying, we've heard him blaspheme Moses and even God. Where have we heard this before? It's the same council. It's the same construct. It's the same pushback that Jesus, the Messiah has felt. uh, And this roused the people, the elders and the teachers of religious law. So uh, so they arrested Stephen and they brought him before the high council, the Sanhedrin. My friends, this is the exact same council that tried Jesus. It is the exact same high priest who actually Luke leaves unnamed. Cause it's kind of like a dig. This is Caiaphas again, who another, another one of this, another one of these like rabble rousing leaders has, has come forward. And Caiaphas is like, listen, we dealt with this once before, you know, what's in your future if you keep this up, right? So uh, the lying witnesses said, this man is always speaking against the Holy temple and against the law of Moses, which is a sacred text in a sacred way. It formed everything that they did in their daily religious and non-religious lives. We follow Moses and the law and we live this out in temple. We have heard him say, Stephen, that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy the temple and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. At this point, everyone in the council, high council stared at Stephen because his face became as bright as an angels, which is a symbol of the power and presence of God. So right away as a, uh, an early Jewish hearer, you'd be like, that's what happened to Moses who, who, who sat in or was in the presence of God. And then the presence and the light of God washed over him. So immediately they're like, oh, something is happening here. Something is happening here. This is not going to be just a regular trial. At this point, everyone in the high council stared at Stephen because his face became as bright as an angel's. And then the high priest, Caiaphas, my words, not in the text, but it likely is Caiaphas, asked Stephen, listen, are these accusations true? And Stephen goes on for this many pages with a sermon. And he gives a bit of a, an historical retrospective to say, okay, listen, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking like, I'm just a fumbly bumbly nobody uh, and just like the Nazarene whom you crucified, but was resurrected LOL. Um, And he takes them through the history of the Jewish, of the Israelite people shot, By shot even before Abraham. Here's what God was planning with Abraham. Here's how he moved the geography of Abraham. Here's how he spoke to Moses. Here's how he spoke through the Kings. Here's how the temple was built. Here's how he spoke through the prophets and here's how he continues to speak through you. The temple always has to be on the move. This is why the spirit now dwells in the new temple, the living, breathing, walking around people whom God loves and created and lives within them to do his work. Work, Could you build me such a resting place? Didn't my hands make both heaven and the earth?" And then this is Stephen's like ending of the sermon, which is not a fan favorite. You stubborn, stiff necked people, you're heathens at heart and deaf to the truth. Must you forever resist the Holy Spirit? Now remember from a religious context, the hearing of that would be like, well, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God only empowers for a special occasion. And now this new band, a family says, no, the spirit has empowered the all of us forever, never ceasing dwells within sanctifies, makes us like Jesus and empowers us to live like Jesus in a world that is loved by Jesus. Must you forever resist the Holy Spirit? That's what your ancestors did. And so did you. Name one prophet your ancestors didn't persecute that even killed the ones who predicted the coming of the righteous one, the Messiah. He's referring to Isaiah and Jeremiah who the Israel is in custom as a rebuttal to their words killed, uh, who predicted the coming of the righteous one, the Messiah, whom you betrayed and murdered. You deliberately disobeyed God's law, even though you received it from the hands of angels. Again, who are we talking to right here? This is like a second in line, like Greek speaking, new believer in this new way who is willing to go to the death, but giving these people the option saying like, you you can repent. You can turn around. Like don't just follow in the way of religion. It will lead you to death. The spirit is here and is leading you to life and it's okay to stay and not be okay. Like your call will likely be to lay down your rights and privileges, the things that you think you deserve to suffer alongside those who are suffering. You are called to the poor. You are called to bring the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Jesus to this earth. The Jewish leaders were infuriated by Stephen's accusation. They didn't hear anything. They were infuriated by the last little block of his sermon. They were ticked off at his conclusion, not his intro, not the body of a sermon. They were ticked off at his conclusion and they shook their fists at him in rage, but Stephen filled with the Holy spirit gazed steadily into heaven. And he saw the glory of God, the of God. And he saw Jesus standing in the place of honor at God's right hand, Daniel chapter seven. And he told them, look, I see the heavens opened and the son of man standing in the place of honor at God's right hand now this is so interesting. Jesus, refer- th- this is the only instance in the New Testament where somebody other than Jesus uses the title son of man to refer to Jesus. So Stephen is referring back to, he sees a vision of Jesus, referring back to the, the, the son of Man seated at the right hand of God, the father, the ancient of days, which Jesus coins in Mark's gospel. Now, did you notice what Jesus is doing here? In, in, in Mark's gospel, Jesus refers to himself seated at the right hand of god the father and now what is jesus doing he's standing he's standing up he's seeing and he's um, he's moving towards action some scholars would stay, would say some one scholar that i read said this is jesus being like These are my people like this. The children of Israel are my people. This is your chance. Listen to my anointed one, the son of man standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. If it could be any clearer, Jesus is now standing saying this is the way and they all converted all of the high priests and everybody there counted themselves among the believers. No, they put their hands over their ears and they began shouting. They rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, began to stone him. His accusers took off their coats and they laid them at the feet of a young man, a religious leader, a Pharisee named Saul. So in this context, you needed permission from the council. They've already been granted permission to carry out judgment, or they've heard the blasphemy of Stephen and the others, um, but they need the kind of final permission. And so they're laying their tunics uh, to say, at at the feet of Saul to say, we're good. And Paul receives or gives the nod and says, it's okay. They remove their outer outer tunics to go and create death. Jesus earlier on in Matthew's gospel remove, will remove his outer tunic to do what? wash their feet and serve. Do you see the difference between religion and this new kingdom? Mm -hmm. Do you see what it means to be okay to stay while it's not okay? They laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they stoned him, Stephen prayed, Lord rain judgment and hellfire on them. Kill them all. Nope. As they stoned him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus. Listen to this friends, listen to this friends. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. In Luke's gospel, Jesus prays to the Father, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Stephen is now praying to Jesus with a divine claim. Jesus, receive my spirit. Jesus, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He fell to his knees shouting, Lord, forgive them. Don't charge them with this sin. And with that, he died.
0: Mm-hmm. And the reason that it's okay to stay when it's not okay is because of Jesus. It's because of what Jesus has done. It's because of the spirit coming. And we want to take a few minutes to move this good learning from our heads into our bodies and into our spirits and to reflect on the ways that we right now need the Holy Spirit with us in order to be okay, in order to be okay and to stay in the places that are rough, in the places that feel like death, in the places that uh, are too much that we can do it because of who he is, not because of who we are and not because the circumstances will change. So I would invite you to just get comfortable, take a breath and set stuff down if you need to. And we're gonna take a few minutes to do a practice together to just let it settle into our bodies. So if you're comfortable, you can close your eyes or just have a soft downward gaze and just take a couple of slow, deep breaths to, to settle your body, to settle your mind, to become aware of where you are, your presence here, your feet on the ground, your body in the chair, to become aware of God's presence here with us, with you. Just try to slow your breath. It's hard for our minds and our bodies to be still. And it's good to practice. It's good to take our time. It's good to be just as we are. Just breathe deeply, resting in God's presence. Now I'm gonna read A prayer for us, this prayer is written by Tess Ward in her lovely book, The Celtic Wheel of the Year. A beautiful prayer as we think about what it means to be okay with Jesus in the spaces that are not okay. If your mind starts to wander, you can bring it back to your breath and just be at rest, paying attention to what stands out remembering there's no right or wrong way. We just start trying to give our presence and our attention to what God, to what the spirit wants to show us in this moment, to what he wants to speak, to what he wants to highlight and that we're at rest in his presence to receive from him. Embracer of all who held out your arms and joined up the circle of life Embolden me to believe that my lessening will bring new growth this day. Embolden me as I cut back the branches and trust the bud will come. Embolden me as I sweep the leaves and make a pathway through Embolden me as I clear a space and allow my autumn work to unfold. Embolden me as I sit in the silence and let you be the all in all. For in the pounding of the grain is the sharing of the bread. In the crushing of the grape is the pouring of the wine. In the falling of the leaves is the feeding of the roots. In the disappearing of the creatures is the survival of their kind. In the cutting of the corn is the new seed that will rise again. In the dying time and darkness is your promise of hope renewed for you have lain in the deathly grip and felt the power of love's release. Release in me, the power of love as I set out this day. Release in me, your love. In the dying time and darkness is your promise of hope renewed. Embolden me as I sit in the silence and let you be the all in all. Jesus in in all the spaces in all the spaces in our lives that feel like death in some way in all the spaces that feel like darkness that feel like confusion that feel like not the way we wanted it to be that feel like not how we thought it would happen that are not what we have hoped for that are not what we long for Jesus in all the spaces where it is falling short of what our hearts crave. Lord, we wanna meet you there. We wanna know you there. We wanna be with you there. We wanna speak the truth of who you are there, Jesus. We wanna proclaim that you are the Messiah and that the way is love and that the victory is won Jesus, we are okay to not be okay because of who you are and because you are with us. Thank you, Jesus. And so the Lord, increase our awareness of your presence with us in all of these spaces. Show us how to stand in the real places that we find ourselves. Even when they are broken down, even when they are more darkness than light, even when there are more questions than answers, Lord, let us stand on the foundation that is you and that we're okay, that we are loved, that we are yours, that we are filled with hope and purpose because of you. We love you, Jesus. We are here for you. In your name we pray, amen.